Good morning, afternoon, or evening listeners. I've recently read a book that I found eminently fascinating and relevant and has excited me greatly, so I thought I would bring it to all of your attention. It is called If I Were You, A Psychologist Puts Himself on the Couch, and that psychologist is namely Peter Quarry, the author, who has had a life in television, in corporate psychological training videos that have been used by some of the world's largest companies. Peter's book revolves around the concept of a life review. He's coming to the kind of final act of his life and has performed some reflection over the parts of his life and formed it into a psychological memoir, as he called it, that contains uh, quite a bit of insight as well as just an entertaining life story. Now, I would encourage that you listen to the book before we start the episode, but we have an interesting discussion with Peter that delves beyond possibly even things that the book covers. So strap yourselves in. We're going for a life review. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights, a podcast we call A Haphazard Guide to Living, hosted by philosophy master David Olney and myself, a philosophy student, Tim Whiffen. I'm joined today with David Olney. How are you, David? I'm very well. And as we mentioned, we're joined by a very special guest. Thank you for coming on Blind Insights, Peter Quarry. Hello to you, both. Peter, I picked up your book and... I was really just taken aback. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. It's been relatable, even though I'm probably on the opposite end of the spectrum to maybe what your audience was like. And <laughs> what, what, hang on, I'll let me just stop you there. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm not trying to say okay. I'm not trying to be rude. I just mean I'm um, only really through my first kind of era, I guess you could say. Uh, <laughs> Do you mean you're younger than what you perceive to be the target audience of the book? Well, it's it's more just that. I don't think I'm at a stage where I should be doing a life review, but I've enjoyed it thoroughly anyway. <laughs> I'm going to jump here because I'm like sitting here wanting to bite my fingernails going, what did you spend all of last year doing? You're not wrong. A life review. <laughs> and at the end of doing your life review, you found a really good book that would have helped lots if you read it this time last year. <laughs> well, Tim, how old are you? So I'm 27. Okay, well, that's admittedly a little young. I mean, when I started writing this book, I was triggered by reading the work of an American psychotherapist named Victoria Howard, who was talking about some of the psychological tasks that should be done by people, let's say, in their third act, to use Jane Fonda's expression. So initially, I was thinking about this book as targeted very much to older people. I mean, when I say older people, I mean, you know, let's say 60 plus, 50, 60 plus. What has surprised me is I've been going around the country talking about the book and uh, running workshops on how to write a psychological memoir is the number of people who are much younger. I mean, 27 is probably at the sort of bottom end of the spectrum, but a lot of people, even in their, their 30s, certainly 40s and beyond, seem to be quite interested in the process of stopping, taking a step back from the hurly-burly of day-to-day life and 
asking a few deep and meaningful questions about, well, you know, how is life going? You know, am I happy with it? Am I not happy with it? What do I want to change? What can I learn from it? So I do think this is an exercise that um, people can do at any, let's say, adult age. I mean, certainly if you're 13, I think probably that's way too young. But, you know, I, I think at your age, probably... It's not a bad thing to do. Well, it's that it's that first act. It was the Jane Fonda. It's about thirty, so you know that there's a there's a sort of a cause for that. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. again, I think there's something here that probably played a big part, Tim, in why this book resonated with you. When Peter talks about in the book the point where you get the flick from you are the child and your parents are the parents to you're all adults, and then eventually there's the next flick where you have to take on the more obvious caring role. Well, where your mum and dad both had health crises in the last couple of years, I think was, in a sense, your version of that switch flicking, where your life had changed pretty significantly. All right, you got married too, but on top of it, your mum and dad's health started to not be what it had been, and you were thinking about a lot more things about yourself and them simultaneously, I think, in a new way. And I don't think I've read anyone articulate that moment of where you flick from being parent and child then to adults together then it turns around and the person who was originally the child now takes on more of the caring role Mm, true i think another argument for reflecting on your life earlier rather than later is that it gives you an opportunity to gain some insight about yourself and to learn and to make some changes and you've still got plenty of time hopefully ahead in which to implement those changes Mm. so I think it also depends on the sort of person you are. Some people are naturally more reflective than others. And, you know, it's no surprise that you run a podcast like this, which is obviously about reflecting on some of the deep and meaningful questions in life. It probably would have been predictable that you would have liked a book like this, like mine. True. I'm sure all of the psychological data would have given you pretty strong predictability of that. Um, (laughs) But look, the thing I think that stands out to me and it's sort of explicit and implicit in some parts, is the abstract of acceptance. Over the course of the book, you sort of come to reflect on your life more positively than perhaps you started out. And I think that is a skill that is not shown or exemplified by many people. And and that, that to me has been what has has been most impressive and what I feel like I've taken most, even though I probably couldn't articulate it properly. And I'd be interested to have your insight into what, I guess, this um, psychological term of acceptance like uh, has felt like or how that was achieved through the book. Yeah, well, look, that's very interesting that you put it like that, Tim, because I hadn't really thought of it in terms of the word acceptance. Having said that, it's very interesting. I was at the Cairns Writers' Festival just the other weekend, and one of the gigs that I had up there was I was interviewing a guy called Luke Rutledge, who's just written a book called A Man and His Pride. The main character is a a 20-something gay man. It's set in uh, 2017, the year of the same-sex marriage referendum. And the book is all about him and his journey towards acceptance of himself as a gay man. And in that sense, that the story kind of parallels, if you will, the the acceptance on behalf of the larger Australian population of same-sex marriage as an idea. So it was kind of a very interesting kind of macro and micro thing happening. But to be honest with you, I don't really see the journey that I've been on that I describe in the book as being about acceptance. Not that I disagree with that. I think that's an interesting frame to use. 
I, I just think, you know, to put it very bluntly, I've kind of got my shit together as I've got older. And that's not a technical term, I hasten to add. So, you know, I've, I've come to know myself. I've come to relax a lot more. I'm less anxious about life. I'm less eager to please, eager to achieve, eager to dot, 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 dot. And so I feel I feel more kind of comfortable. I mean, this is the great surprise for me about getting older. We live in a very ageist society and our notion of age is all about loss. And you know, there's not a lot of discussion about what we gain instead that actually comp- actually more than compensates us for the for the various losses. So I think I think it's really that that you're picking up on. And I'm very happy with the word acceptance, even though it's not one that I had particularly thought of. It feels like a like a higher order. I would put it at the top of Maslow's hierarchy if we were to sort of categorize it, right? On, on top, on, above self-actualization? I would just put it within that, in, in the pyramid, <laughs> within that um, okay. little triangle. Yeah. Because I, it would, that seems like a necessary cause to self-actualize. I mean, maybe it is the the, the ring below. But uh, Well, actually, mm. sorry to interrupt him, but you've got to remember in his later work, you also get to self-transcendence, mm. where you make sense of yourself by almost being able to step outside of yourself and see yourself in relation to broader themes. And that's a different thing to acceptance, but it seems to me in the, the last section of the book where you're imagining the next chunk of your life, Peter, that's a wonderful example of self-transcendence. Know who you are, but be able to step away far enough and put yourself in a, a situation and watch it happen and let it grow. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you specified that particular part of the book. I mean, basically, the book is uh, an exercise that I did in in how to look at your life and make sense of it. And in a sense, it's a, it's a type of memoir in that I tell the story of my life and I break my life down into a number of what I call eras, which are really, you know, chapters or you know, segments, if you will. And then after each chapter, I kind of unpack what happened. I try to make sense of it. I, I, I use various psychological theories and data to, to try and interpret what happened. And I got up to the age that I am now in my, now I'm in my late 60s. And I thought, okay, so how, do, how am I going to now kind of take this forward into the future? Because the book so far obviously had been an exercise in looking backwards in time. And so I came up with this idea of imagining that it was now a number of years later and that I'm looking back over the period of my life between my mid-60s to my 80th birthday. So the exercise was imagine you're 80 and you're looking back over the last 15 years. Now, of course, I don't know what's going to happen in the, in, in the next 15 years. So it, it was an exercise of melding together uh, fears and fantasies and dreams and then just also letting, you know, whatever spontaneous whatever pop up. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I always suggest to people doing exercises like this is don't think about it too much. Just bash something out. And I wrote that that section without thinking about it. I, in fact, at one stage, I think I, I we moved to Adelaide, which may have been prescient. And it was a fabulous exercise because it really allowed me to explore as I said, my dreams and my fantasies, my fears and my, my hopes. And I'm glad it worked for you as a, as a sort of literary piece. Yeah, it's funny. Throughout the book, I, I couldn't help reading it from the perspective of so much of the book 
is tapping in to sort of Marcus Aurelius in particular, you know, Stoicism, and say Seneca's letters to Lucilius, where, you know, he wrote him 42 letters about different bits of life. And I'm like, wow, there's so many beautiful parallels here with how, you know, the old Stoics, you know, by the time they were old people, and writing to their friends and whatever, and writing last parts of their diaries, were able to make so much sense of life and combine kind of the premeditation of evil, which is such a big thing, you know, in Stoicism, of practicing your really difficult days. But also with that thing that people ignore in the Stoics, and that is recognizing that there's incredible joy in being alive. Stop worrying about what can go wrong. And as you did in that latter part of the book, realize, well, hang on, I couldn't have got this far if I wasn't pretty good at solving problems and overcoming obstacles. Yeah. Well, when I go around talking about the book, I encourage people to do a similar exercise. And I should say maybe en passant that when I started the book, I had no intention of actually writing a book. I started this exercise as really just an interesting exercise for me, a kind of exercise in personal development, if you will. And it wasn't until I was about two thirds of the way through that I read back what I'd written and I thought, no, I do want to try and get this published because I I do believe that this is something that can help people, that can be of use to people. But when I talk about this idea of doing a life review, of looking back over your life, of writing a psychological memoir, I identify a number of benefits. And one of them is, for example, making peace with the past. Another one is the idea of increasing your self-awareness or insight or self-understanding, you know, getting to know yourself which is a terribly important thing. And there's a mountain of psychological uh, research that shows that people who have a high level of self-understanding, self-awareness, insight, tend to you know, be much more successful in their relationships, in their professional life as parents, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the third benefit I see is the idea of thinking about your future, which we alluded to a little earlier in our conversation, the idea of using what you've learned so far about life, about yourself, about how things work, to think about what do I want to change about my life going forward? And obviously, whether you're young like Tim or older like me, that is, I think, a very, very useful exercise to do. Mm. When you started working on the book, Peter, like narrative therapy is the broader area, isn't it, where you write out the story of what happened and write out the story of what might happen. Was this something you discovered sort of decades ago or only really when you started working on this project? Oh, no. I mean, I knew about it a long time ago, not necessarily under that label. I mean, a a lot of these psychological theories and approaches have been around for a long time and they just kind of get recycled every now and then. It's a bit like fashion, you know, Mm. you know, the sixties come back and, you know, so it all tends to recycle. So no, I knew about it, but uh, it's interesting that you you talk about that because that really was um, a part of the book where I made peace with my past. I had a, a very, very difficult childhood. My mother was German and my father was Australian and they met in Germany before the Second World War. He, he actually was sent over there by General Motors. He was a, a, an automotive engineer. They met in Germany and then, you know, Hitler was in power and things were getting a bit tricky over there. And my father had to leave very suddenly uh, to come back to Australia. And my mother ended up living in Germany for uh, all of the war with, you know, the bombs on her, etc., she came out to Australia after the war. My father, after the war, he, my father managed to track her down and said, I still love you. I want to marry you. Come to Australia. 
<clears throat> excuse me, and she uh, came to Australia in 1947 and uh, had my brother and me. Uh, my father died when I just had turned three. And my mother, who, you know, now we would recognise as was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, of course, we didn't know about that in those days. She was a very needy woman. She she, she was of a, of a generation where women were essentially passive and men made all the decisions. And, of course, now there wasn't a man around. And she really was lost. And she decided to go back to pack up and go back to Europe. But then she went back to Europe and she didn't like it there and she came back to Australia. Anyway, we ended up spending basically all of my childhood going backwards and forwards between Australia and Europe. So, you know, quite a crazy childhood. Plus, she was quite inappropriate both uh, psychologically and physically with me. I mean, she, you know, for, for example insisted that I sleep in the same bed with her when I was 13, which is, you know, you've got to say not good parenting. So I had a very, very difficult childhood, you know, with all this traveling around and blah, 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 blah. And I'd always felt this kind of sense of anger and resentment. You know, why me? Why did my father have to die? Why, why couldn't somebody else's father have died? Why did I have the loony mother? I carried this this sense of being a victim, feeling a bit of a victim of circumstances. I carried this with me all of my life, really. And it wasn't until I did this exercise and applied narrative therapy, as you mentioned, which basically asked the question is, okay, so this is the story you are telling yourself about your childhood. Is there another story that you could tell? Is there a different way of, tell, of looking at your childhood that actually takes you away from feeling angry and a victim and resentful to a more positive place? And the answer was actually quite simple, and that is yes. And it was about what I gained from that childhood, what I learned. And in particular, I learned two very, very useful life skills. One is resilience, which is the ability to bounce back from adversity. And the other one is adaptability, the ability to cope with change. Now, I have those two skills in bucketfuls. And they have been extremely useful to me uh, in my life, uh, in my career, my personal life as well. So, yeah, so I, I use narrative therapy to really help me make peace with my past. I would not blame any of you, your listeners, or even you two for that matter, thinking to yourselves, hey, you're in your mid-60s, you're a psychologist, you just worked this out now? And the answer is, yes, I did. Sorry. But guess what? I'm human. <laughs> Actually, I'd say the exact opposite. That no matter how well educated we are in the job we've done, we can't use tools on ourselves until either pressure or opportunity makes things line up. Because okay. some things you just you have to be at the right phase to be able to deal with it. Enough things have to be out of good to look in the pit. Yes, look, I you know, I mean, psychologists talk about readiness to learn. Yeah. You know, it's about this idea of you know, there is a time when you are ready for the lesson, and then the teacher appears. Apparently, so yeah, better late than never is all I can say. One of the bits of the book I love, Peter, is the way you describe the trips on the ships back and forth between Europe and Australia. <laughs> that it gave your mum a chance to disappear into glamour. But here's where one of your big moments of being adaptable came. You know, putting your tux on and being the only, you know, boy 
in the formal dining room where you should have been off in the kids' dining room. You're right. going to sort of the salon after and being expected to walk up in your tux and formally ask, you know, women of whatever age to dance with you. Right. And you know, do it like it's 1920s Vienna and you've got a jeweling scar. Exactly, exactly. Except, you know, I was nine years old. Yeah. Yep, my mother insisted that I accompany her to dinner. Look, people get addicted to drugs and, you know, sex and gambling, whatever. My mother got addicted to first-class travel on Italian cruise ships. Because, of course, in those days, I mean, we're talking about the 60s, you could go between Australia and Europe by plane, but a very, very viable option was to go by ship. Mm. And the ships, depending on whether the Suez Canal was open or or not, uh, took between four and six weeks. And for those four to six weeks, my mother could suspend all concerns about normal life, about shopping, about, you know, paying the rent, about, you know, all of those schooling. She was just able to live this kind of extraordinary, glamorous life. I mean, you know, she had these gowns. I mean, she had a tiara. Let's put it like Mm. that. She had a tiara. And, of course, I needed to be the, you know, the Prussian prince accompanying her on all of this. And, you know, when I tell when I tell this story to people, they just sit there agog, you know, they can't believe that I've, I've kind of made it to some degree of normal life. And to be honest with you, I, I, I sometimes look back, back on it as well. And I, I'm, I also amaze myself uh, or I am amazed at myself that I somehow managed to, to survive it all. But there you go. Yeah, it, it really strikes me as an amazing example of fake it till you make it. Yes. That if you've if you've played the prince at nine, and you you know it, like the example you give of when you come back to Melbourne for your final year of school, and you make the appointment to go and enrol and you write the check, and the poor principal and you know, principal's assistant are kind of looking at you like you've got two heads, yeah, because you're this sixteen year old who's come in and gone well I've got the checkbook I need to work out what I'm doing this year while I'm going to school. And obviously living independently for that year until your mum came back. But it's another case. You fake it till you make it long enough and you worry about the current thing or the next thing. But a hundred other things have already gone in the easy-to-do-again basket and you come across as credible while you're worrying about the fake it till you make it. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you talk about faking it um, because, uh, as I describe in the book, I wanted to be an actor. Mm. Um, uh, we, we, in our journeys to and from Europe, uh, uh, in 1967, my mother basically ran out of cash. So that was the main reason why we stayed in Italy for four years. And I, I went to an English school in Rome from, uh, 1967 to 71, which of course was the, 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 the last years of La Dolce Vita. And uh, it was it was an extraordinary experience, but I, I got introduced to drama there because, you know, good English school, they put on lots of Shakespeare plays, etc. And I wanted to be a, um, my dream when I left school was to, uh, to go to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London and become a Shakespearean actor. Uh, you know, so I've had this kind of penchant, if you will, for performing. And in many ways, it, it was a coping mechanism. It was, uh, it, you know, it was a set of skills that I developed to cope. I mean, also, you know, uh, I mean, we should maybe while we're talking about this, um, you know, also mention the fact that when I was 14, which was around 1968, a year before the Stonewall riots in New York, I came to the realization that I was gay. Now, that was a very different time to now, like very different. I mean, now I, I believe that half of the kids come out on Facebook. I mean, in those days, 
I mean, A, I didn't really quite understand what being gay meant because there was no information, there was no sex education, there was nothing. I mean, there was nothing. Um, and um, But all I did realise was that it was probably a good idea to keep this to myself. So, of course, I needed to draw on my acting skills to cope. You know, I had to pretend that I had a girlfriend and, you know, that I liked girls and all the rest of it. So my acting skills um, came in very, very useful at a number of stages, even though I didn't end up going to RADA. <laughs> Such an interesting contrast to the fact that, you know, you're in Italy, this hyper-macho culture, but you're there in, you know, an English language school running like something that sounds like it basically fell out of Brideshead Revisited. <laughs> and, you know, it ends up there that you end up, you know, with a gay teacher who's infatuated with the same, you know, young man you are. And you're like, yeah, okay, we're in Brideshead now. Where's the teddy bear and the hairbrush? Well, you you paint a very a very very accurate picture. It was it was all of the above except the the background was the Colosseum. Yeah, um, kind of suave. But, but uh, you know, once again, those those coping skills that I had to learn um, served me very very well. And and the funny thing about about acting is that you know sometimes people ask me whether I I regret that I didn't go down that path. And the reality is, I what I found. Much to my surprise is that if you have if you have an urge, if you have a really, really strong urge, even if your 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 planned route gets blocked for whatever reason, you find a way around it, you find a way to express that urge later on. And uh, I, I think you probably uh, will remember in the book I mentioned that I had a gig for um, for seven years on Good Morning Australia with the with the venerable Bert Newton, who passed away, I think, about a year or so ago. And that was that was live national television. And, you know, at any moment we were going out to apparently a minimum of a quarter of a million people. And I can remember one day, um, the, you know, the floor manager was, you know, five, four, three, two, we, we're just about to go to air. And there I was sitting on the set with Bert under the lights with makeup, because you have to wear makeup on telly, in my, in my cosy, and I remember thinking to myself, I am an actor, but I'm playing this role of this guy called Peter Quarry, who's a psychologist. But I was drawing on all of my acting skills. And um, so, you know, you, you, you do find a way to express the urge if you have it. I, I kind of want to come back to um, the, the, the Shakespeare thing, even though that was a, a, just a throwaway comment, just because there's, there's parts of the book where I think you sort of describe your life as maybe a little bit hedonistic. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's underplaying it, I think. <laughs> I'm just, you know, in the sort of the philosophical sense, not in a, um, a pejorative <laughs> term. But and I'm I'm just interested because you know I guess so often that's represented as like a cautionary tale, as a bit of a you know it can be so often represented as a tragedy. People who try and numb themselves with drugs as as a coping mechanism, or you know try and maybe escape from the serious stuff of life, and and sort of end up drowning in it anyway. And I, I guess you sort of present an alternative, which is that you know those two things aren't kind of causally li linked, as in taking drugs and drowning yourself. You obviously very intelligent man as well. So it you, you've come out this you know the other side of all of that, not having kind of um, I guess compromised the parts of yourself that that you that I guess you probably like most. I imagine. Well, look, 
Early in the book, as you know, I talk a little bit about the difference between luck and choice. I make reference to Jean-Paul Sartre. And generally speaking, I've always had this kind of great belief uh, that you choose your life. You choose who you want to be and you choose your life, et cetera, et cetera. And, and certainly a lot of my professional work, uh, both as a, as a counselling psychologist in the very early years and then later as, a, as, as essentially as an educator, um, has had as has had as one of its philosophical underpinnings this notion of choice, and you know often often you have to try and help, sometimes force, sometimes challenge people to accept responsibility for their life and for the choices they make. So I'm I'm generally kind of not a luck kind of guy, if you if I can summarise it like that. But in answer to your question, I think the reality is I've been very lucky. You know, as a gay man mm. in the years before the AIDS ac- epidemic, I mean, mm. promiscuous, I don't even think captures the notion. I mean, we were beyond promiscuous. I was beyond promiscuous. I mean, gay men are, even now, very promiscuous. I mean, safe sex, who knew about safe sex? Mm. I mean, even in the early years of the 80s, when the AIDS epidemic was starting to happen, we didn't know. We thought we thought it was because of you, you were sniffing poppers on the dance floor. So there was a level of ignorance going on. But somehow I managed to, you know, and I was I was not sitting in a convent, you know, with my, the rosary beads. Let me let me assure you. And yet somehow I managed to navigate that without becoming HIV positive. Mm. Um, similarly, as I as I described in the book, I experimented with a lot of drugs, including heroin which I'm not proud of, but that's what happened. Uh, I was in love with a heroin addict, which was not, maybe not a very good choice on my part. But <laughs> it, therein lies a whole other topic about the nature of romantic love, which, as you know, I cover. But, you, you know, uh, certainly drugs and sex, uh, I, really, I really pushed the envelope way beyond the edge of the table. Um, and I really... I really don't know how I managed to survive at all. I mean, I didn't become a heroin addict. I didn't get hep, hepatitis. I didn't get AIDS. I, I seem to have sailed through all these things. And I, I just, I have to conclude that there is an element of luck there. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you've got another theory. Tim, how do you explain that I survived? I mean, the, the, the choices, but even though, yes, you're making conventionally irresponsible choices, I'm sure they weren't bleeding into, you know, kind of work time. Probably explains um, some of your success, maybe. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assume that. Okay. No, because as you say in the book, Peter, you became an expert at working out how can I get the work done in 97 seconds <laughs> and get my day back. Yes, yes. Well, okay, that's, that's then sort of a whole, a whole other issue. Yeah, look, I, I, I don't know how I managed to survive it all, but I, I, you know, every fibre of my being doesn't want to sort of go for the luck explanation, but I just think that somehow there was an element of luck. Well, in, well okay, let's, let's put a bit of a hypothesis out there that fits with some of the other things in the book then. Sure. If chance is what happens and luck is the choices you make, it seems to be most of your exploration of everything available to you was looking for something positive and looking to connect with other people. And if that's the energy going out of positivity and looking to connect, 
that's maybe more likely to find people that are doing that than people who are actively trying to get rid of their sense of self and get rid yeah. of their sense of connection. So maybe the world can, against that difference of being in a room with a group of people who are all willing to be open to each other versus a group of people who are all closed off to each other and the different sort of dynamic you end up with in that room. I think that could exist at much larger scale in communities. Yeah, look, I think I think there is something very interesting in what you say there, David. If I reflect on my my relationship with the heroin addict, you know, I had an opportunity to get a very first-hand view of junkies living in St Kilda, you know, mm. cir- circa 1975, I think it was. And I I certainly got the sense, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people in the drug and alcohol education area are going to crucify me for saying this, but I, I, I got the sense that those people who did become addicted to heroin wanted to become addicted to heroin because they wanted to destroy something. Yep, and I'll just add something here for our listeners. Listeners, think about Gabor Mate's book, The Myth of Normal, and his idea from running you know, that drug clinic in Toronto where he would ask people, okay, what's the trauma that the drug covers? Yeah. Because he said, that, you know, if you've ended up in a drug clinic and you can't get off the drug, it's because you haven't dealt with the trauma. And yet yeah. there's people at the other end of the spectrum, and this is why I brought it up, where it's the exploration rather yeah. than trying to kill something. And it yes. seems to me you were on the exploration side. And the point with an explorer is explorers will do really dumb shit, but they don't do dumb shit to die. They do dumb shit to see what happens. <laughs> yeah, well, I look. I completely agree with you. I think you've. I think you've expressed it um, very, very well. So it comes back to the resilience. I think that that would be the sort of a positive mm. resilience rather than an. And again, we'll jump back to stuff you did with me, Tim, in complex problem solving. That resilience isn't enough. What Peter's really describing in the book is anti fragility. Anti fragility. Yeah. Mm, it's a wonderful term from Nassim Nicholas. Talib. So you got a coffee cup, you drop it on the floor, it doesn't break, but it dents. That's resilient. Yeah. You got a coffee cup, you drop it on the floor, and it changes shape so that every time it's dropped, it lands the correct way up so that nothing spills out. That's an anti-fragile coffee cup. It right. gets better from the hit. So the classic example in the book that gets overused and misunderstood is you break a bone, it comes back stronger. The better example is actually the restaurant sort of strip in any city. Individual restaurants are very fragile. You know, they come and go quite quickly. But if you notice in any restaurant strip, all restaurants learn from the ones who fail and the ones who succeed. And the point of a good restaurant strip that can survive 40, 50 years is the whole strip keeps getting better by learning from each other. They're not resilient. They don't stay the same. They're anti-fragile. They get better. Love it, love it. And I'm sort of tired of the obsession with resilience in literature because the really good books on resilience aren't talking about resilience. They're talking about anti-fragility, which is very much the positive version of it rather than the I just got through by my fingernails version. Arguably, Peter references resilience almost hand in hand with uh, adaptability. Yeah, which Which is probably would be a better definition of anti-fragility, but because we got it from Nassim Nicholas Taleb, a mathematician zillionaire from trading on the New York Stock Exchange, his definition is too many pages and too unclear. (laughs) (laughs) Resilience largely 
anchored in adaptability where you don't just survive, you get better through the experience, which again comes back to my kind of description of your exploration without the need to destroy yourself or the need to hide something or damage something is such a different path. And again, if we look back, sort of uh, something like Stephen Kotler's book, Stealing Fire, about how every culture we know about basically loved getting wasted. They didn't get wasted to destroy anything. They got wasted to expand themselves and their understanding and their sense of connection and belonging. And I think this talks to the point, Tim, that you made right at the beginning of that conversation about the, the sense that, you know, I'm accepting myself more as I'm getting older. I mean, you know, it, I'm, I'm like a fine wine, if you will. I'm getting better as as I as I age. But, you know, um, just to sort of take the conversation in a slightly different direction, but ripping off the, the comments about hedonism, about the drugs and about sex and all the rest of it, I hesitated when I was writing the book. Well, when I, when I was first writing, I mean, I wasn't going to write a book, so I had all this stuff in there because it was just for me. When I thought, no, I, I actually want to turn this into a manuscript and try to get it published, I went back and I thought, mm, I wonder whether I should remove some of those sections. Are they really necessary? And I, I thought about it long and hard because I thought, mm, you know, is this going to dent my reputation as a psychologist, blah, 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 blah. And I finally came to the conclusion, no, this is, this, this is the truth and I want to tell the truth and I don't care what the consequences are. And two things have been very interesting since the book has come out and since, you know, people have started reading it, I've been getting feedback. Um, one is the number of people who have commented on how honest and authentic it feels. And, and in particular, the word authentic, which is really not a word that I had been thinking about, you know, and, and I, I don't think you can try to be authentic. You either are or you aren't. And I certainly wasn't attempting to be authentic. But somehow this is a quality of the book that people are experiencing that is making it really work for them and making the book attractive to them. And, and that's great. But the other thing I just wanted to say was that I have been really surprised at my own reaction since the book was published and since I've got on the circuit and been talking about it. And the only words, and maybe you can come up with some, some other way of framing this, but the words that, that keep on happening in my head are, I feel known. Now, when I say feel known, I don't mean feel known in, a, in the sense of, you know, fame or any of that sort of stuff. I just, I feel that... I've put it out there. I've, I've, I've told the truth about my life, warts and all. It's almost as if no one can hurt me anymore. Mm. And in some ways, you know, apropos of the journey of that I started when I was um, uh, 16, when I realized I was gay, it, it feels like the last step of coming out for me. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really interesting you say that because as you were describing that then, I'm thinking about the part of the book where you're sitting on the bench uh, in Italy with the guy who's a bit older than you, and it's maybe going to be the first physical experience you're going to have with another man, and then absolute terror kicks in, and you know, you disappear, and you're like, well, to have started there and got to the point where you can go, hang on, to work out who I am, I've had to do all this exploration, and in a lot of situations, this exploration is going to diminish people's perception of me, whereas the point is now, if you've made peace with it, and the book can show it in a context of look at how this was just a part of growing into the person I am. Mm. 
who got through so much. So I can't help thinking, and I'd forgotten I read it years ago. There's a book by Catherine Millett, and she was a top sort of art curator and critic in France in the 90s and early 2000s. And when she wrote her book about literally leading this sexually depraved life while it being the top of the French art scene, again, it was probably 20 years ago that the book came out and it was, you know, a highly respected woman, you know, deliberately wanting to do some pretty kinky shit. And that book was not received well at the time because there wasn't a full story of how she grew into, I don't know, the person she needed to be or wanted to be. It was more, it was only a chunk of her life. Your book comes across as massively authentic. Whereas if I think back to reading her book, it comes across as she was trying an experiment and it was more or less fun. But in her case, the book almost shows that something in her is numbed by the end of the book. The difference with your book is at the end of your book, there's a joy in being alive and being able to look at all of this and go, well, if any of you got a problem with it, guess what? It all contributed to me being me. And if you're sitting here and you're interested in me, get over it. Yeah. Yours is a far more positive, you know, story and endpoint, I think. And of course, the reality is no one has said anything negative at all. And if Mm. anything, the absolute opposite. Um, I I mean, there was just a review that came out of of, of the book today um, by a writer for for an organisation called Ballarat Writers. You know, the review was once again talking about how authentic and honest it was. And and the thing that really thrilled me, and this is the best feedback that I can get of anything that anyone can say, the reviewer was saying that it's the book triggered her to do some reflection because that was mm. my purpose in wanting to get it published. Not so much to tell my story. My, my story is really only there as a case study, if you will, mm. of, of how to step back from the hurly-burly, as I said before, and reflect on your life. And this reviewer was saying, and other people have said, and it's just music to my ears uh, when people say the book triggers, stimulates prompts a mm. uh, reflection of their own. Mm. Did it do that for either of you, I wonder? I, I think the bit in the book, Peter, where it, it was not so much I did new reflection, but I revisited a series of reflections, which is nice to do, to see how they've happened, is that point you're talking about in the book where you realise you have to switch gear from being a kid to being an adult because yeah. of the nature of your life. Yeah. So in my case, it was the realisation at probably about seven at a blind primary school that if I didn't get my shit together, they would try and help me more. And the more they tried to help me, the more likely I'd be damaged Ooh. by the environment. And not knowing what it meant to be a grown-up, but just realising, okay, I can be a kid with my, with my family. I can be a kid when I'm doing fun stuff. But when I go to school, i got to switch on and game this system because the system is not as helpful as it's meant to be. And that transition, I think, is an interesting one because you know, now we have psychologists across the developed world talking about the great regression, the proportion of adults that um, don't even have a go at adulting anymore. <laughs> they just stay in their permanent childing state. Yeah. Uh, and yet when you have had to flick out of childing into adulting when you should have been a child out of absolute necessity, there's no choice or it's going to get worse. It's did nice you, to read anyone else writing about that to see how many people you, have had to do it. Did you feel 
angry about that at the tall David, or did you immediately recognize that this was a good thing for you? It's a funny thing. So for me, the rage about being blind, I can't ever remember when it wasn't a thing. And the thing of becoming aware of having to adult at, say, seven or eight, I think it was about that age, was it meant, well, there's no point letting the rage out. All it does is attract the attention of quote-unquote helpful people who don't have a clue. So the adulting actually became a great tool for controlling the rage. You know, acknowledging it can't, it doesn't go away, but also responding to it is a waste of time. So my response, again, has been a combination of an existential response, more from a Camusian perspective than a Sartrean perspective, but very much the Stoic perspective of look at it and ask it the question, are you going to make my day better or worse? Yeah. If you're going to make it worse, I'll just let you rage over there in the corner. Yeah. Terrific. Tim? Well, I am very naturally reflexive, so I found a lot of use in the externality of PQ, separating yourself, I suppose, into kind of a, a rational but also quite empathetic self, and then I guess the stream of consciousness and everyday kind of self. Because I'm someone who, I guess, part of my self-awareness or whatever it might be, I've, I'm really prone to post-morteming my entire life <laughs> and thinking about how just completely awful I have been in every possible situation. And so the idea of reflection I am, am, am in a current battle with, my relationship with it has not always been healthy. So I guess I'm interested to know how you navigate maybe some of the tensions between those like two parts of yourself, how you how you found a good way to let them talk to one another. Like how, how did that relationship spawn? Well the idea the idea came to me in 2019, the year before the pandemic, I was, shall we say, between engagements. And I was thinking, what do I want to do with myself now? And I, I'd had a long career producing content which was presented in a number of different media, so, you know, in videos and workshops and public talks and so on. And the idea of writing a book was a kind of pretty kind of logical next step. And I was doing this reading about this uh, this American psych psychotherapist who I referred to before. And so I, I came across this idea of wanting to do a, a life review, you know, which maybe might turn into a book, but initially I didn't want it to be, uh, uh, to worry about that commercial imperative uh, of, you know, will the audience like it and all that sort of stuff. And, but I thought, you know, this would be an interesting exercise to do, but I thought, how do I do this? You know, what, uh, you know, what device do I use? And um, it just came to me in uh, a, a total flash. And I thought I'll split myself into these two parts. So there's Pete, I mean, my name is Peter. So there's Pete and Pete is this, person who's, you know, led a pretty full and wonderful life and he's got to a certain age and he wants to look back on his life in order to make sense of it, in order to make peace with the past, etc., etc. And the other part of me is PQ, which are my initials, Peter Quarry. And he is this psychologist, you know, with 40 years experience and blah, 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 blah. So the idea of splitting myself into, the, into these two parts, which are both me, but I guess parts of me, if you will, and then allowing a dialogue to happen between them. As soon as I thought of that, it just made absolute sense. And in fact, I was so excited, I literally 
got off the chair I was on. I went to, to back to my room. I was in a hotel at the time and I got my laptop and I actually wrote the first letter. Um, I should say that it's not, I mean, I've, I've got a lot of compliments from people saying how original it is. I mean, I don't think it's that original, the, the idea of writing letters. But from, from a kind of psychological point of view, where, where the idea came from is when I trained as a counselling psychologist, one of the techniques that we used or that we used to use was a technique called the two-chair technique. So, Tim, imagine, just to use a very, very simplistic example, imagine that you've come to me and you're in a relationship and, you know, part of you, you know, wants to stay in the relationship because you love this person, but another part of you thinks, oh, but they're not really the right person for me and it's going to end in tears and you're, you're conflicted. So um, what I, as, as the therapist, might do in that situation is I'll actually physically have two chairs facing one another. And I'll say to you, okay, when you're sitting in this chair over here, you're the part of you that wants to stay in the relationship. And when you're moved across to this other chair, this is the part of you that wants to leave the relationship. Now, go and sit over in this chair, the stay chair, and I want you to tell the leave part of you why you want to stay. So you, blah, blah, blah. anyway, you, you basically allow the client to use this device of these two chairs as a kind of physical manifestation of these two inner parts that are in conflict. And you, all you have to do is just facilitate the conversation. And what happens is in a, a lot of cases, the client works out, in fact, which of the two sides has the more energy, has the better argument, is the more reasonable thing to do. So it's a really, really good way of exploring an internal conflict. So I guess I used the idea of the two chairs and split myself into these these two parts. Not that they were in conflict, but one was, in a sense, the client and the other one was the therapist. And how did it work? I couldn't believe how easy it was. I mean, the book fell out of me. I mean, people talk about writer's block. I experienced no writing writer's block at all. The book fell out of me. Of course, it, it was the device made it very easy because at any one time, all I needed to do was respond to the previous letter. So if PQ had written uh, a letter back to Pete. Pete then just had to reply or, and respond to the previous letter that PQ had written. So it was a very, very easy way of splitting the book down into a number of slices uh, and at any one time, all I needed to do was the next slice. And, you know, if, you know, if you think about procrastination and writer's block is really a form of procrastination. One of the ways of overcoming procrastination is that you take the big, horrible, hard, hor- disgusting, large, overwhelming task and you slice it into subtasks and then you do one subtask at a time. It's a kind of nice way of overcoming procrastination. So unknowns to me, this device also made it a lot easier to write and to not get stuck. True. It seems something very important in there, Peter, is the fact that, you know, in the book, Pete wants to do the work and PQ wants to help. Yeah. So once again, like so many things in the book, it's about, you know, an innate positivity about the exploration and the effort required. And it seems the trick to me, when you gave the example then of, you know, the, the two chair example, it's tell you know, the other person who doesn't want to stay or does want to stay, you know, why? Don't argue with each other, make your case. And making your case is a great thing because it doesn't then allow it to turn into an argument or ideally it shouldn't turn into an argument. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people have asked me whether I was fearful 
embarking on this exercise? You know, what might come up? What might I dredge up? And I think even in the forward to the book, I say, look, you know, I have no idea where this is going to lead. But I wasn't scared because I thought, well, whatever comes up, I'll deal with. You know, God knows I've got lots of resilience and adaptability. But it's, it's interesting the number of times this, this issue of fear has, has come up. I mean, for example, I, I was at Williamstown Literary Festival last year, middle of last year. I was interviewed by um, actually by a clinical psychologist and it got to the Q&A part of the, uh, the, the conversation. And uh, there was a guy in the audience. He must have been about my age. And he said, look, you know, I'm really interested in what you've been saying and, you know, I'm certainly going to buy the book and read it. And I've been doing a lot of journaling uh, for many, many years, uh, but I like the idea of doing a more kind of comprehensive review of my life as per, um, you know, what you're suggesting in your book. But he said, um, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little worried because I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just scared that somebody might find it and read it. And I don't know where my, this response came from, but just kind of intuitively, I said, are you scared that somebody else might read it or are you scared that you will read it? Mm-hmm. And he just skipped a beat and then he said, I think you're absolutely right. And I said, well, don't be scared. Don't be scared. I mean, you, you'll explain better the philosophical underpinnings of what I'm about to say, but I have this great, this very, very strong belief, like this strong conviction that we are the only entities in the universe capable of this level of reflection. You know, teacups can't do it, giraffes can't do it, only we can do it. And I think, I believe as a result of that ability comes a responsibility to do it. And for me, a life well-led is a life that has been reflected on as much as possible. And I think the reality the, the sad reality is that many people are scared of reflecting on their lives. I think a lot of other people are kind of interested in it but don't know how to do it. And I would like to think that my book in some ways contributes to the pool of knowledge around how to actually do it and, and, and give some skills and, and techniques for how to actually do it. But I, I feel very strongly that because we can, we should. That's sort of totally. a twist on Descartes, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, again, Descartes got it wrong by saying, you know, I think, therefore I am. No, dumb, dumb, it's the other way around. I am, and I'm really lucky I can think. <laughs> well, uh, let me take it a step further. I am, and therefore I'm lucky that I think, and therefore I should. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Nice. I'm interested about the sense of, oh, okay, maybe I'll add a third category to people. Those that um, have never done it and and are scared of it, those that are sort of interested in it, and then those that do it, let's say those are three categories. Maybe I'd like to add a fourth and maybe just sort of describe a little bit further the camp that I occupy, which is I do it often and it serves me very ill in terms of my mental health. Um, And so I'm interested in your developed, uh, I guess, compassion maybe would uh, be a good word for it embedded in the character of PQ. When you're asking yourself these questions, you show yourself empathy in terms of upon hearing your own story, where I feel maybe the reason that some people might even be scared of it is they may actually have done it before and it it turned out poorly (laughs) and given them a negative outcome, I suppose, as opposed to your optimism. Or not optimism, but positivity. I, I wonder whether I can push you push back a little bit, Tim. When you when you say it's it served you poorly, 
um, and it's had negative outcomes. What what do you mean by that? Well, I guess my David and I described, we were talking about it recently because and and maybe there is an issue in which I'm confusing reviewing with ruminating because what I would describe is my post morteming. Um, and I know that that you know that can absolutely happen in a really short term. Also exists over a longer term, where I will um, look upon eras of my life with a sense of embarrassment, as opposed to I guess that acceptance, which is I, I guess where I, maybe I've drawn that that concept from, just by by contrast to my my experience of re- reviewing. I think I got to jump in here and say something that maybe listeners will be thinking too, and that is PQ is providing really good support but the wonderful thing with the book is pete doesn't ever succumb to fear Mm -hmm. so the line that pops into my head is the wonderful line from frank herbert in june fear is the mind killer and the only lesson you need to learn in life to keep pushing forward is fear is the mind killer and it's not that PQ is ever instilling fear into Pete, and it's not that Pete is ever giving into fear. But I think, Tim, if we were to call you Tim and TW, TW's giving all the right support, mm-hmm. but Tim has, you know, met fear and it's the mind killer. Yeah. yeah you're um, asking brilliant questions, but, you know, Tim is getting overwhelmed by this could be scary. No, it isn't, because you're totally in control of it. Yeah, I mean, I. You know, without wanting to delve too much into your reviews, <laughs> rumination habits, I can't help wondering whether you're asking the wrong questions. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, reflection, I, I think reflection requires a sort of dialogue, some sort of structure that, that allows you to have a dialogue. Now, whether whether it's Pete and PQ, as in my book, or whether it's, you know, your older self and your, or your younger self, or whether it's, uh, you know, your male or your female, the positive you and the negative you, or even if, you, if, if it's just in the form of, well, you know, I ask myself, there's a sort of subject and an object. Mm. There. I think it requires some sort of dialogue. And the, the, the elements that are covered in the sort of dialogue that I'm talking about uh, can include observations. So, for example, PQ might make an observation of Pete. You know, I have noticed that dot, 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 dot. Um, and Pete might go, wow, gee, I never thought of that. Or, nah, yeah, interesting theory, but you're wrong. Um, so the, the, in the dialogue, there, there are observations, there might be challenges. But at the end of the day, a lot of it is around questions. And I wonder whether you might be biased in the kind of questions that you're asking. I mean, I'm putting this very, very delicately here. But, you know, you may be asking questions that are coming up with very negative answers. And, Mm. you know, at the end of the day, the answers you get are only ever as good as the questions you ask. Uh, Garbage um, in, garbage out. (laughs) Yes, okay. Uh, So, you know, (laughs) let me pose this question for you to reflect on. What are the sort of questions that you are posing, uh, you, that you are putting to yourself when you mm. are, quote, reflecting? Mm. Uh, and, you know, step, try and step back and actually have a look at those, those questions. My guess is, now I'm like going right out on a limb here, but my guess is they may, they may veer towards the negative. That's why you're getting negative answers. Mm. Does, that, does that make any sense at oh, all? Oh, so it was, yeah, crystal clear. 
and I'll go back to complex problem solving and soft interrogation techniques and remind you never to ask why. Because the minute you ask why, you have to justify the answer, and justifying the answer gets you back up. Mm. That's why any soft interrogator will stay with how, what, when, where, who, and reframe any question to avoid why. Yeah, well, right. it's about it's about what it's about what questions can you ask that will come up with a, a useful a you know useful data that is actually helpful. And if Tim, if you're describing the sort of reflection that you're doing as always taking you to a negative dark place Mm. you know i think you're not asking i mean that's not necessarily always a bad thing no but it's consistent and that's the issue you want want to balance it with with you know other side of the ledger stuff totally i mean you mentioned rumination which of course is a problematic area and can lead to, to depression but, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't see rumination and reflection as being the same thing at all. Same thing. Yeah. No, understood. Uh, Peter, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, perhaps even more so than the book, because it's delved even that little bit deeper. But um, any final questions from you, David? No, I had fun and I could ask questions all night, but there's no burning question left. Well, maybe what I might ask, which is something we usually pose, is, Peter, was there anything that you wished we had asked you? Off the top of my head, I cannot think of anything. Um, well, I know I know. at sort of midnight tonight, as I'm drinking <laughs> Yeah, but that's off, okay. We'll do that. Oh, shit, I should have asked them. You know, I should have suggested this or that. But right now, um, let me compliment you both for um, having read the book. Uh, and uh, but not only just you know read the book. I mean having having read the book in a in a kind of sophisticated way, because obviously that's not always the case. Uh, I've really appreciated your questions. They've really made me think. And, and David, some of your connections with some of the other some other writers and thinkers has been really really interesting for me. So I want to thank you because I've actually got something out of it, and it's it's taken me to a different place. So thank you. All right, Peter. Thank you very much for joining us on the Blind Insights podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If the ideas of this episode have inspired you, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. Do them a favour so we can make a better informed and connected world. Thank you to Solstice Podcasting for use of their studio. If you're interested in making your own podcast, find out more at solsticepodcasting.com.au.